Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. I am John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to have you here joining us on the Live Inspired Movement. On every Live Inspired podcast episode, I have amazing guests join us to share their story, their successes, their failures, their lessons, their life. But, but maybe more importantly, you're going to walk away with some real ideas, maybe a shift in your mindset and some actions to apply in your own life. Before we dance and sing into today's program, you may want to check out our social links. If you ever get a little bit discouraged by the negativity going on around us in news and maybe in your own life, why not check out some inspirational stuff? You can learn more at JohnO'LearyInspires.com. Again, it's JohnO'LearyInspires.com. That's where we keep our links to social media, all of our videos, links to past podcasts. You can check out my book, On Fire, and everything else that we're part of in our community. JohnO'LearyInspires.com. We have guests on this podcast that through their lives, through their lessons, through their journey, have impressed, inspired, impacted us in one way or another, and so we want to share them with you. Today's guest is in particularly special to me. When I'm invited at a large conference to walk on stage with walk-on music is what they call it. It's when they, they, they announce the speaker, and then as the person makes their way from the seat or from backstage to the front of the stage, they play the song. I always walk up to one of two songs. One of the songs is called Alive Again by a guy named Matt Marr. You may not know that song. You may not know that artist, but today you're going to learn about both because he is with us in studio to talk about his life, his journey, his work, and what it means to you. My friends, it's going to be incredible. You may want to buckle up. You may want to open up your hearts, your minds, your journals, grab a pen, get ready to take some notes because Matt's here today to talk about his journey and what it means to you. Matt Marr, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hey, thanks so much for having me, John. Oh, Matt, it's a, it's a delight. For those who uh, who aren't yet familiar with you, Matt, tell us a little bit about you, your work, and maybe even specifically where you are right now. <laughs> well, uh, I'm a singer-songwriter, and um, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I was born and raised in Newfoundland, Canada, and then I spent uh, uh, another uh, 18 years in Phoenix, uh, and, uh, that was sort of like a good chunk of time. And then now I've been in Nashville, uh, Tennessee for about seven years, uh, and, uh, or five years, sorry. And my wife, Kristen and I have been married for seven years. That's where the number seven mm-hmm. came from. And we've got three kids, six and under. And I spend most of my time on a tour bus traveling around the country, playing music and, you know, sharing stories. And, uh, I am currently in, in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, on tour, uh, with a fellow uh, artist and a good friend named Mr. Chris Tomlin. Yes. And, um, yeah, that's sort of me in a nutshell. You, uh, you've had some remarkable success as a singer songwriter. You were the 2015 GMA Dove award recipient, Matt, 
a lot of times folks hear stories of success in music and, and touring with Chris Tomlin and stadiums packed, and they think that it was an easy journey toward it and that it always was a perfectly straight line to where you got to today. But what we know is it's never a straight line. And so I, I want to kind of back the tour bus way up out of Nashville, out, out of South Carolina, all the way back to Canada. Let's talk for a little bit about your life growing up as a little guy. What, where were you born again? And talk about your family. Yeah, so I was born in, in Newfoundland. And Newfoundland is um, a province of Canada, all the way in the East Coast. Mm. And uh, St. John's, the capital city, just outside of it is a point called Cape Spear with a lighthouse. And that's the most easterly point of North America. And um, uh, I lived... Uh, grew up in that. Grew up sort of in a in a in a family with. I only have one brother, but I had a. I lived next door to my cousins, and there were four cousins, and so there was kind of like six kids between two houses. And um, was born and raised there. My dad grew up uh, in a small community called Freshwater Placentia. He met my mom, um, uh, who was um, part of a folk group that had gotten a USO grant to um, perform at American naval bases. Hmm. My mother was American, and so uh, she was a performer as well, and that's how my parents met. And um, and so I was born there uh, and lived there until I was 20 years old. And, you know, I kind of received a lot of my early musical encouragement, I think, from my parents and also from the culture itself. Newfoundland is very... Very vibrant place, I think, that emphasizes um, culture and hospitality. Mm -hmm. And I think just sort of enjoying the best of what life has to offer. Um, and uh, it's the culture itself sort of developed almost indigenously. It's it's this weird mix of like Irish people will go yes. there and they'll be like, this place feels like Newfoundland, you know, but then Scottish people will go there and they'll be like, this place feels like Scotland. And then you know, and, and if you go to some poor communities, they speak French completely, yes. <laughs> or there are places where everybody looks Portuguese, and and it's um, and so it's a very very it's a fascinating place. It was made famous recently on nine eleven, and actually mm -hmm. there's a musical currently playing now on Broadway called Come From Away, and it was the story of a town in Newfoundland called Gander, and the whole town doubled in population almost overnight when all of these planes got diverted to Gander, Newfoundland, and sort of the, the hospitality that they experienced and received was sort of world-class. And so I was really, I mean, I think just impacted and formed by that kind of a culture. And um, But growing up, I went to church every Sunday, you know, because it was more of a, of a cultural obligation at the time. Yes. Um, but a fresh, as a freshman in high school, there sort of unraveled um, – a, a large-scale abuse scandal that um, with an with a, with a orphanage run by the Christian Brothers, and everybody stopped going to church. So, so I was a teenager, and so any excuse, I think, to not go to church... Yeah, there uh, it is, man. Um, ...was a good one. Um, so I stopped... So I kind of just didn't really... I always tell people, I, I never didn't believe in God... I just didn't realize how much God believed in me. Hmm. And I think, you know, a lot of people, when you when push comes to shove, that's where most people are at. It's not that they don't believe in God. It's just that they don't, they haven't had an experience where they realize how much God is for them. 
And so when I was 20 years old, my parents got divorced. I moved to Arizona because I, well, it was a a bunch of circumstances. I had gotten my heart broken and I wanted to go to LA because I wanted to do film scoring. I wanted to do music and movies. That was like my, my big ambition in life. And, um, uh, I just kind of felt like my life wasn't going anywhere. And so I moved to Phoenix and thinking I was going to be there for six months. And, uh, I had a cousin who was my age. So this is 1995. I'm 20 years old. I show up to, to the States thinking I'm going to be in Arizona for a bit. Cause I was like, who can live here? It's 110 degrees in the shade. Mm. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I'm like, they call it the Valley of the Sun. They should call it the surface of the sun. It felt more like, um, more, felt more like that. But my cousin invited me to go to church with her. And I said, yeah, why not? I haven't been in a long time. And, and I went and, you know, I couldn't tell you what they sang. I couldn't tell you what the homily or the sermon was about. Uh, I the, the memories I have were just of... There was people there of all ages, all shapes and sizes, and everybody was just really engaged. Mm. Everybody was listening when, uh, you know, when the priest would say, the Lord be with you. And at the time, everyone's still saying, you know, and also with you, like the whole room said it. And it just was this, I'd never experienced anything like that before. And so I, uh, there was a, there was a youth ministry program that's called, it was called Life Team that um, was very similar to a program called Young Life. And, um, but it was, it helped kids uh, specifically sort of who come from a Catholic context, just, you know, talk about life and being a teenager and the pressures you face and the challenges you face and what, how do you keep your priorities straight and what is a priority and what, you know, yeah. what's temporary versus what's eternal and sort of doing it all within the context of, um, of a Catholic faith. And, and I just spent the whole summer hanging out with all the volunteers cause I was 20 and they were all in their twenties. I didn't know anybody else. So the whole time while I was like sitting around on Sunday nights, waiting for the youth group to end so we could go out to, <laughs> you know, have pizza or right. have a beer or whatever. The good stuff. Um, um, I'm like sitting in the back of the room and these people are talking about faith. And I'm and I'm just sort of asking the question of why doesn't this matter something to me, you know? And then I'm I'm hearing teenagers stand up and talk about how they want this to be a more of an informing thing in their life. They don't want it just to be like an additive, you know. And I grew up sort of, and that was the thing, you know. You sort of pay your respects for an hour on a Sunday, and then you just sort of go about living your life. And yet I'm watching these teenagers just saying, no, I want this to be the thing that defines all my actions. Matt, you, you are, uh, you're just going right into it already. And, and, um, when I do public speaking professionally, question 13 on our survey is what topics do you want John not to wade into? What would, what, what do you not want him to talk about? And there are two answers that I always get on question 13. I, I'll, I'll let you play a student for a moment. Guess what the two answers are, Matt? God and politics. Of course, man. Do not talk about politics and do not talk about God. So I'm curious. You're talking in some regards about both right now, but but mostly faith. 
Why do you think it is that we that we refuse to have a conversation around this, whether it's on podcast or in the back of auditoriums or in the front of stages or even around the coffee shops of life? Why, why, why have we totally pushed it and stiff-armed it to the side? Well, I think because it ultimately comes down to this, and this is the thing that I had to confront myself at 20 years old, is that when I was a 20-year-old, I didn't want anybody telling me how to live my life. And when I was a 25-year-old, I didn't want anybody telling me how to live my life. And when I was a 30-year-old, I didn't want anybody telling me how to live my life. When I was 35 and I got married, I definitely didn't want my <laughs> wife telling me how to live my life, but I chose to get married. And even now as a 42-year-old, man, I struggle with allowing anybody to say something about how I should live my life. I think the truth is, John, is that we live, and this is, it has nothing to do with religion. We just find ourselves in the um, living in an amazing place of opportunity, but unfortunately is also can indirectly be the most individualistic time ever in human history because of, because of the technologies that we have, because of the advantages that we have, because of the opportunities that we have. We also find ourselves in the loneliest time in human history. And the thing is, is that if you don't tether yourself to a group of people that you have something in common with, and you give those people license and freedom to speak into your life and offer a perspective that could pull you in a different direction of where you want to go and how you want to be, if we don't do that, then we're just all adrift and floating on our own. And, you know, the reality is, is that nobody wants to live that way. We all end up tethering ourselves to communities and to places that, um, that inform our worldviews and inform the way that we look at things. It just so happens that, you know, the one that – this one that I found myself in was the one that I was raised in, mm -hmm. which was, you know, and, and in my 20s and I got to Arizona and I, I probably should have said this, like – I went around and like I checked out a bunch of stuff. Like a friend of mine had non-denominational yeah. churches. I went to there. I went to like a Buddhist group, uh, the student group at ASU, because I was a student at Arizona University. And you know, being There's grown up there. in Canada, yes. I think growing up in Canada, like it's, it's just it was sort of it still is a very <laughs> multicultural um, uh, mosaic. Yes. It's how they view sort of Canadian culture. And so there's diversity and you're taught to respect diversity. And, and so I'm, I never, I never felt like, Oh, I'm going to do this. And this makes me better than anyone. It was definitely not that it was just sort of a thing. It was sort of a realization in life of saying, thinking to myself, you know, and even, um, as somebody who grew up in a home that, um, that wasn't perfect, you know, my dad, um, struggled with alcoholism. Um, you, you just at some point you realize that like you can't be, you know, you, there's you can't change anybody, you can't change anybody but yourself, and even that you really can't do on your own, <laughs> because the level of power and transformation that it takes, you got to tap. There's you're going to have to tap into something that's bigger than just you. As you're 
progressing through life and you're hanging out kind of in the back of the room and you're part of these conversations, but really not all in on these conversations. Oh, yeah, totally. Was there a turning point, Matt, where you're like, you know what, these uh, these guys who are a little bit strange, but at least they go out and have pizza with me afterwards. Maybe they're on to something. Maybe they got something that I'm actually seeking and I need. Oh, I mean, well, I mean, I guess what I would say is that it. I. I. Uh, I was. I was very, um, I was very lonely, and a lot of it was not really dealing with the situation of like things that had happened in life and you know, um, my family situation and mm-hmm. it was incredibly hard. It was incredibly hard on my mom, you know, having to do what she did. I mean, basically having to leave, move back to the States, declare bankruptcy in order to do it. Um, at the age of 49 years old, right. um, now as a, as a, like a real adult, I look at that and I go, wow, the tremendous amount of like strength, it, it it took my mom and how heartbreaking it must have been as well um, to have tried for years to go to my dad and say, Hey, can we go into counseling mm-hmm. and we work on this thing together? And he just was not, he just couldn't, he couldn't do it. He didn't have the courage, which is so, it's so funny. Like that's just, that's what I'm talking about. It's the courage to admit your powerlessness or the yes. courage to admit your weakness, but it's in, it's when you admit your weakness that you're actually, you're actually making yourself available for a grace and a strength that is so much bigger than yourself. And um, so I found myself having like just dealing with these questions and, and, and like dealing with these things. And, and, and so I was, I was very, uh, uh, very open. So I guess what I would say, and there was a turning point of a youth retreat where uh, I got asked to do the music for it because the music minister's uh, wife uh, or the music minister couldn't do it. His wife was pregnant and he just, he couldn't get away. And um, the, the, so he's like, I want Matt to do the music. And they were paying me part time to play piano at the church, Mm -hmm. which is probably another thing that sort of, you know, wrote (laughs) me in was that the music minister heard me play piano and he's like, well, Hey, you're really good. So if, (laughs) if we, if, if we pay you for what you're doing, Maybe eventually your heart will get will get into this uh, for a, a different reason, and uh, yeah. So they asked me to you know to do the music for this youth retreat. So we go up to the northern Arizona mountains, and we're hanging out, and it's going along, and it's going well, and and like I'm doing the warm up music, and <clears throat> they kind of sold me on it by saying like they're like, do you watch David Letterman? And I'm like, <laughs> of course. And they're like, do you like Paul Schaefer? And I'm like, he's like one of my heroes because you know. Canadian yes, yes. piano player. They hang together, Paul man. Schaefer's like he's got the dream gig. So, so I'm doing like house music, and we're playing fun stuff. I'm probably playing covers or just like just you know fun stuff. And then I, I kind of I actually go outside to have a cigarette because at the time I smoke. And uh, I come back in. I'm standing in the back of the room, and they're doing this goofy skit about a kid who has a who has a heart. It's like a like a teenage girl, and she has her heart, and her heart is sort of represented by this grapefruit. And she's got this heart, and it's like nice and great. And she starts going through life, and and slowly this grapefruit just starts getting mangled by different things, you know. Mm. 
And this guy who shows up, who's supposed to represent the devil's there. And he's got like, you know, he's wearing like a bad pinstripe suit. And then there's the guy there who's Jesus, who's wearing like a robe that's way too short for him. And like, they picked the skinniest, whitest guy in the group, which I just thought was hilarious. And, you know, he's supposed to be Jesus. And then there's the football player. I mean, it's like, I was like, my goodness, how many different stereotypes are we going to have in one skit? But there's this moment where, like, her grapefruit, now her heart, is covered in tinfoil, and it's just mangled. And, like, there's all this stuff, like, falling out of the tinfoil, and there's, like, grapefruit juice going everywhere. And it's just, it's just barely, it's just not hanging on. Right. And there's this moment where, like, the guy playing Jesus walks up, and the whole time he's had this, like, brand new piece of fruit in his sleeve. And like, he takes this mangled mess that's supposed to represent her heart. And then all of a sudden he just out of nowhere comes this pristine piece of fruit. And I'm in the back of the room and I distinctly as clear a day, as clear as day, I didn't audibly hear a voice, but I felt a voice say to me, Matthew, that's all I want to do for you. <laughs> and sort of this realization that all my whole life, just the things that I'd gone through, the, the decisions I had made, the things I experienced, you know, um, the inadequacies I ever felt as a teenager or a young adult, the insecurities, the, you know, the highs and the lows, all of it um, that, that I was presented with a moment that was going to basically redefine the way I looked at all of those under a under an amazing purpose all of a sudden everything had meaning hmm. there was n- nothing was meaningless and um and I and I and over and more than anything I just felt loved like so I tell people, it's like, it wasn't that I didn't believe in God or a higher power or anything like that. I always believed. I always had a Bible by my bed that I used to read Genesis and, and Revelation because I was obsessed with how we got here and how we were getting out of here. <laughs> but what I didn't know was how much God believed in me, how much he was ap- actually for me, that God primarily was not a like a hall monitor who was up in heaven with a checklist waiting for me to mess up so he could tell me how bad I was. And, but that he was a father who was so incredibly proud of the gifts that I had and um, the ways in which I'd used it, however imperfect, however imperfectly I'd used them. And that's the kind of experience that's transformational. Matt, it we literally, it reworks the way you look at the world. We've had on, on our show rabbis and um, evangelical pastors, Christian scientists, atheists, Buddhists. You know, it runs the gamut. One of the questions I'd like to ask them, though, because listening in today, we, we have all different types of faiths and, and some with absolutely no faith at all. So my question on behalf of all of our listeners and myself is, why do you believe what you believe? You're, you sound so convicted. This is what you've been a career and a lifetime doing now. 
But but mm. why do you have such conviction that this mangled grapefruit of yours, it wasn't the girls on stage, it ended up being yours. Why do you have such conviction that it's it's been redeemed, it's been made whole again? Oh, it's a great, it's a, it's a great question. And I mean, I think, I think when you start a journey, you start any sort of spiritual or metaphysical journey, a journey of the soul. Um, I think, you know, I'll, looking at things that Jesus said as a historical figure or as a spiritual figure, regardless of whether or not you ascribe to him being the, the embodiment of the God of the universe made into flesh, sort of the perfect revelation of who, who God is. Um, one of the things Jesus talks about is things being made evident by the fruit that they bear. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's sort of funny that I tell a story that the transformational encounter I have was it involved a piece of fruit, mm-hmm. but it, it, the irony wasn't lost on me that in my life there would be moments where I would turn around and realize that my character had changed. The substance of who I am had changed. It didn't mean always that I was a a perfect version of who I was, but that, that ultimately um, desires that I had had long lasting desires in life that I'd had were now seemingly fulfilled. Mm. Um, as a kid, I and as a musician, artists are so sensitive. I mean, you, you kind of have to be, you know, like you have to kind of go to dark places um, and and sort of go to the edge of things and come back and sort of reveal to the world, hey, everybody, look what I found. Yes. Um, that's what artists do. And, um, but I think sometimes you can... Like that's the, the, the shiny side of it. I would say the shiny side and the shadow side. The shiny side of it is that you come back with this amazing like piece of art, a painting, a sculpture, a song, and it's your you allow yourself to go to the places that other people aren't always willing to go and um in interiorly, you know. The the shadow side of it is that you stay there or number one, or number two, it it um you make decisions in life out of that place. Uh, and I think what I would say is that for me, particularly the, the sort of the revelation of Jesus and the Christian context and the way of looking at life was the way that sort of um, helped me embrace the totality of who I was as a person. Mm. Matt, in, and, uh, go, go ahead. In one of the interviews where I, I saw you, you were talking about a song you wrote called "I Need You," and mm-hmm. um, that song to me, I, 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 it's it is my favorite song that you've ever written and produced. I, I just I'm so moved by. It. I listen to it all the time. It seems like the kind of song that you should play loudly when you're struggling, and we're going to play it here in a moment. It seems like the kind of song that you should play when you're really beat down, right? At the dark, at the end of at the end of the rope, in that shadowy place. However, in the interview, what I loved about it is you said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, that that that's true," but 
It's also the kind of song you should sing and play when you are lit up, when you are on fire with joy. It's not an either or, it's a yes and. Tell me why, tell me why you say that. Um, well, I think it's only because I think it's only maybe it's the human ego. And once again, it's sort of Henry Nowen talked about this sort of the false self. You know, there's the side of us, the sort of subconscious or unconscious side of us that makes decisions based on um, the ego. And, you know, I mean, leaders, people in, in, in the corporate world, leaders and influencers, everybody struggles with this. When you find yourself in a position of influence or power, and, and then all of a sudden, are you making decisions based on the good of the whole, or are you making decisions to sort of based on your insecurities or based on your fears mm-hmm. or based on your anxieties? And that's not living life abundantly. Yes. That's, that's, that's short term. That's, um, that's a shrinking way of looking at things. And so singing a song of I need you requires a certain level of courage. And to me, it's like if you have the courage to sing it when things are difficult, then my goodness, just go ahead and have the courage to sing it when things are when things are fantastic, because you've already done the hard part. (laughs) (laughs) And I I, and I and I think that's the thing is that is that we find ourselves in situations in life where we're we are brought to our knees. And and I think those moments exist. There's there's some of our greatest teachers those those sort of moments, and they're not meant um, they're meant to be remembered so that we don't have to constantly. I don't know. Like I I think I I guess for me it's a thing of living life of not wanting to be seesawing back and forth, but right. more so growing as a person to the place that I just I am who I am in all seasons, in all moments. And so there are moments in life when I need God because of, of the difficulties that I face, but there are moments where I need God because I want to enjoy the richness of what I'm experiencing on a deeper level. You know, I find that now, especially as a parent, um, holding, there's nothing like holding an infant child in the middle of the night <laughs> and they're finally falling. They've been crying <laughs> right. for 30 minutes and they're finally asleep and there's this peace and stillness. And in that moment, I'm saying, oh, God, I need you because I want to remember this moment. I want to hold on to this. I don't want to forget about this. And I feel like that requires a supernatural level of memory. Uh, uh, because I because I because I want to treasure it. Matt, I. I had the opportunity to speak to a group called Focus in San Antonio, 10,000 incredible mm. kids um, in January this year. And and then later on in the year in May, 19,000 incredible consultants in, in Las Vegas. You had an opportunity, my friend, and by the way, I got very nervous in front of both of those groups, but you had an opportunity to sing that song you're describing in front of 4 million one of them, a guy named Pope Francis. I'm, I'm going to play that song now, and then when it's done playing, I'd like to hear your reaction to what that experience was like. Lord, I come, I confess 
bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you. So, Matt, there, there you are, man. You, you drop the mic. There are four million kids and leaders going crazy in Rio. What, what, what's that like to play a song that you wrote in front of four million people who are singing the words back to you? Well, I, first of all, I will say technically it was only it was only three million, but you know, <laughs> at that point, what's a what's a million? A million here or there? I round up. Yeah, it. I mean, what I would say is. The, the difference between what I did and what you did, John, is that um, if you, you when you notice in the video, I, I have my back kind of to the people. We're all faced in the same direction, I think, number one. I think um, uh, there – oh, man, I just was reading this yesterday. Um, uh, Shelley, the poet, talks about uh, how – that in uh, in poetry, the nightingale represents this voice of the creativity of the artist, and how ultimately the artist um, isn't really singing to the audience. Um, it's just that um, the audience they're singing to their own solitude, and the audience is witnessing it. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. And what they witness is actually not so much the actual artist but it's this experience. And, um, and I think similarly, this is the same way when people watch this video uh, for me in the sense of it, I think there's the experience that we all have that I had with 3 million people of singing that song. And I would say that, man, my experience was no different than anybody else's. I think Obviously, though, it's people like, yeah, but it's your song <laughs> and um, that 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 we wrote, but uh, or that that was sung. And, you know, I would say that it was a it was an incredible moment of feeling of connection. Not so much on the musical side thing, but more. More on the faith side of thing, right, because because I was facing the same direction as everybody. So it was this great sense of, wow, I'm not alone. <laughs> like, like, this is who, this is who I, this is who I'm standing with, or in this case, kneeling with. 
because we're all kneeling. Yes. And I think sometimes when we do, when we think of ourselves or we think of our life or we think of us in our need, we tend to have very isolating experiences. And I think that, and once again, I think this is one of the big motivators for me in terms of why is my faith so important? It's because I've, I believe that ultimately faith is, is exists so that one, you would come to know how loved you are. And two, you would be motivated because of how loved you are to live a life um, of abundance in terms of being outwardly focused. Because when your interior needs are met, when your desires and your fears, your anxieties, your worries, when those are met, then you are free to give of yourself. So let's let's and it oh, go ahead. Let's talk about giving of yourself for a moment. You you mentioned that you're you're with me on a tour bus right now. You're on the road, yeah. you said, all the time. I'm on the road quite a bit, and I know from others who travel for work. Uh, as grand as it may seem being in a Denny's at two in the morning starved, hoping that someone comes over to take your order, the reality is it's actually exhausting. And as wonderful as it is performing in front of three or four million, I mean, what's a million here or there, or a hundred people in a small little cafeteria, at the end of the day, you go home to a hotel room by yourself. And it, uh, it's mm. exhausting. And uh, although you're surrounded by people, you're also extraordinarily isolated. So, Matt, how do, you, how do you continue to give of yourself on that tour bus of life when I would imagine what you really want, when you're honest about it, is, dude, I just want to be with my three babies and my wife. I just want to be mm-hmm. back home in Nashville. Yeah, I think, I mean, first of all, that's very true. It just period. Um, I, uh, more and more, just feel like, you know, you feel like as a parent, you're missing too much. Um, you know, I would say that, um, I'm very fortunate in the sense that I have a wife who, um, I think keeps me incredibly grounded (laughs) and, um, I think when I'm home, she pulls me out of myself. So I think that that's a big, I actually think that that's a big um, help, especially for an artist type, is that um, I think one of the ways in which I stay grounded and one of the ways in which I stay connected is by simply coming home and not being a big deal and (laughs) taking out the trash. And, you know, um, this past week was Halloween and my whole family dressed up in costumes. And I thought to myself, this, I'm going to have a very embarrassing photo on Instagram. This is not good for my brand, <laughs> you uh, know, but I'm like, you know what? But it's, it's great for my family. I and see it the other way, by the way, I see the humility of that and the familyness of that and the, the hilariousness of that. We, my wife and I dressed up as, as little parochial school boys and girls and had a blast and don't apologize for it. So, uh, I, I, I saw your picture. I thought it was awesome. Yeah. You know, I, I think that, um, I think that, uh, obviously for me, uh, having being connected with friendships, um, and people who are like-minded and share a similar vision and a similar desire for life, um, is really, really important. I, I think that, you know, I'm very fortunate in the sense, John, that I typically am not traveling by myself. I'm actually usually with a group of people. Um, 
my band that travels with me. There's five people in this current tour that I'm on. Um, uh, one of those people from my band's with me. And then uh, Chris, uh, this guy I'm touring with, Chris Tomlin, him and his band, um, we're all very close. And so we spend a lot of time together. Um, and I think that definitely helps um, create a sense of connection. And, um, you know, but it is, it's hard. And, so, you know, Stephen Curtis Chapman, who's another very well-known contemporary Christian artist, he always calls Monday morning the re-entry when you get off the road. And I think that's honestly the harder thing um, for me is coming out of what I do, you know, when I'm in the middle of a tour four days a week, I'm in an environment that's very catered towards me. Yes. And then I've come back in, step back into family life and have to kind of like forget about all of that. And that, and that can be a little bit, that can be very challenging. Tell me about the creative process of writing. I, you know, I'm, I, uh, I also am a writer, but I don't take my words and attach it to music. Writing in and of itself is tricky. It, it, it's a, it's a process, man. It's, it's everyone has their own process to go through. Then you are adding music to it, and now it's even more nuanced. And you've done this for eight or nine or ten records, Matt. How, t- tell me about that process, not only of returning on Mondays, but eventually you, you create a beautiful album, and now you got to do it again. How do you start with that new piece of paper and, and start over? Um, that's a great question, John. I think um, I was just watching this great documentary called Score, and it's about film scoring in movies. And uh, one of the people they interview in the film is Hans Zimmer, who's obviously like one of the best-known contemporary film composers of our time, done, like, a lot of Christopher Nolan films, Batman, Inception, um, oh, my goodness, uh, Interstellar. Mm -hmm. Uh, He, uh, you know, he's done a bunch of superhero. He just does all these big Hollywood blockbuster films. And he, he said this one point where it's true, it's like every time someone asks him to do something, he starts off, as a completely blank slate. He has no idea where his inspiration is going to come from. And he's always afraid that it's going to dry up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's, and he said, he's like, I have no idea where music comes from. And I'm realizing more and more that I do. I mean, just yesterday I was, uh, got together and was writing with another songwriter in Nashville. And I have a writing studio behind my house now. And I went back and I was thinking to myself, I've, there's no inspiration here. I have no idea. Uh, I have no idea what's going to happen here. And um, lo and behold, this other writer came and had this great story about how she'd been staying in an Airbnb. And the fan in the room was so loud. And it kept singing this sort of, she started making out a melody in the fan. And that was enough to start a conversation and start a process. And two hours, three hours later, there was a song. And it's sort of this amazing thing. And sometimes um, songs don't come that way. I I think what I've realized ultimately with the creative process for me as a songwriter is it's really 
mostly about living life and being completely in the moment and observing the moment. I think songwriters ultimately have this ability, and I don't know if writers or creative types or other creative types are the same way, but I am just constantly listening to the world around me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and people will say something, or I'll see something, or I'll read something, or I'll hear something, and it immediately I know, oh, there's something in that moment. There's a there's a there's a song in that moment, or there's a process in that moment, or there's a there's a melody in that moment, or there's a there's an image in that moment, or a lyric in that moment, or a feeling in that moment that would lend itself sort of to the medium of communicating through lyrics and and music. And sometimes it's scriptural, sometimes it's the total antithesis of that. Sometimes it's a fan in a room that's annoying and keeping you awake. Um, you know, a lot of times, definitely the stories of other people <clears throat> are always, always, um, you know, I think powerful. Um, I, I always joke that with a lot of the congregational music I write that, um, gets inspired a lot by me stealing lyrics from dead people. Um, I always, that's what I always say is I steal lyrics from dead people. I'm, I'm obviously inspired a lot by hymns and sort of the stories behind the songs that get written, because I think, I think, I think there's something in even, it's amazing how many hymns are written born out of suffering yeah. and hardship. And it's interesting because I do think that one of the things that Christianity and its modern uh, iteration struggles with, I think, with the rest of the world, is it kind of feels like it doesn't feel as authentic sometimes when you when when we don't like your story feels real, John, because it's a story that's born out of suffering. And not everybody basically, you know, got caught in the middle of a fuel bomb before. But metaphorically, plenty of people do. No doubt. And I think it's the the courage that that faith sort of materializes and demonstrates through our vulnerability um, or because of it that makes... Um, that makes life so much more compelling and so much more powerful. And, and, um, and so I'm, I'm more and more aware of that. I think I'm always trying to reflect that in my songs. I think that's another thing that inspires me is sort of faith and hope and love in the face of adversity. Matt, when, when an audience member leaves your uh, theater or arena or massive park with three and a half million in Rio, whatever it may be, when even even if they just see you in a coffee shop the way you are with your kids, wh- what do you hope that someone who is watching you or listening to you or just observing you might leave with uh, once you step out of that room? H- how are people different or better or changed because Matt Marr was with them? What, what do you, what, what's wow. your hope? What's your hope, man? It's a great question. <clears throat> well, I think hopefully, first of all, they're just somehow a light is shown pointing them in the right direction. 
in a direction towards being other focused, living an outward life. Um, I think, I think I always hope with my music that there's a sense of connection that people feel a sense of connection. Um, and not only with God, but with each other, you know? So even like if, if I'm playing a concert, I want people to have a sense of connection with the people that they're standing next to, mm-hmm. the people that they're standing around. You know, it's a sense of we're not alone, you know. I think I think obviously with my majority of my music, because so much of it is influenced and inspired by my faith, um, yeah, it's not so much a sense of like I want people to believe exactly what I believe as much as I primarily first just want people, I would love for people to know how much they're loved (laughs) or begin to, to have an experience to know how much they're accepted, how much they're loved. Um, obviously by the creator of the universe, because I, I believe that, you know, as a, as Aquinas would say, you know, there is a there is a divine mover who moves us all and who you know sets it all in in motion and continues to interact with the world you know i had this experience um on uh, uh yesterday and uh going to church and my son's going to school now and He's going to a Catholic school and that's a trip, you know, because like you walk in and you see little kids run around in your uniforms and you have all these memories yourself. And, and, uh, and you're like, you remember what you did yes. in the school. <laughs> you're <laughs> like, oh, I've been there. I really hope my kids, yeah, I really hope my kids <laughs> right. don't do that. Um, you know, and, but there's this, there was this moment of, um, you know, after communion, I'm just sort of, just sitting there in the pew and it's very quiet. I had just this real sense of, you know, like in, in my faith, in my Catholic faith, they say that that's the moment that you're the closest you can be with those who've gone before that you love. And uh, I lost my father in March. You know, he passed away 70, 72 years old. And, and I had this immediate sense in that moment of his, closeness and my grandmother his mother who i who i learned after the fact had prayed for me every day when i was a baby (laughs) she used to just stand in in my room where my crib was and just and say prayers over me out loud and just this but this this immediate just this sense of oh my goodness we are loved Mm -hmm. so much greater than we could ever than we could ever realize. So I do think that's the thing, like with, with, you know, people encountering my music. And then if there's, if there's an exchange that there's that, that kind of a moment can happen. We're just in a, you know, just in a brief exchange. Um, people can be pointed towards that reality that we're, we're, we are loved and we're, and we're made to be loved and to love others in in profound transformational ways, not just transactional ways. Mm. Matt, you're uh, 
your most recent album is called Echoes. Mm. It started with your father and you know, alive and well and uh, doing what dads do and your son's doing what sons do. And as it progressed forward toward completion, not only was your dad ill, but eventually he passes, dies, and you got to move on into life and back into writing and music without mm. your dad. You're an orphan, right? I, how, how did that change that album? Um, it it really changed the, the process a lot. I mean, I... Um, I grew up in a home that was involved in the political world. Growing up in Newfoundland, my my uncle who lived next door to me was the leader of the opposition party in the Newfoundland House of Assembly for 20 years. And um and my father was in the in the was involved in several different political campaigns. And so <clears throat> I've always had sort of a tendency towards that. And I think definitely looking at the landscape of how things have been um, in this country and the discourse that's happened and sort of the increasing lack of civility. Mm-hmm. Um, I found myself wanting to say, how does my faith inform the way I look at the world around me? And so I've been writing songs that sort of were dealing with this sort of like, how do we address conflict? How do we talk about resolution? How do we, how do we really look at the poor? How do we look at um, those who view things differently than we do? Um, but then I'd also written songs because I'm always writing. And there was this collection of songs that inadvertently were all inspired by hymns. And they talked about God's goodness and his faithfulness in the midst of trial and adversity. And I recorded a couple of those because I wanted some of those to be on my record in January. And I was on tour. I was on a tour um, in the spring. And in March, March 1st, um, my dad went into the hospital. And I always remember this because I woke up that morning and a tree fell on my house. <laughs> and it was also Ash Wednesday. Mm. So I was like, wow, this is like, talk about weird omens. The trifecta. <clears throat> and, uh, and my dad went in the hospital that night and 48 hours later, his kidneys had failed. And, um, 48 hours after that, I was in Newfoundland by his bed in intensive care and he was in a medically induced coma. And we were sort of talking with the doctor about end of life decisions. And, you know, he started to rally. He made a comeback, uh, within a week, he was conscious off the respirator um, uh, but he didn't ever really fully recover and he passed away on, um, March 19th and his death, um, while I was not, um, shocking because his health had deteriorated, um, over the years, it was sudden and I found myself clinging to these songs that I'd written that (laughs) talked about um, God's goodness and his faithfulness in times of adversity. And so much of me had been already been thinking about, about how do I, how do I echo the things that I believe in to the world around me? And how, what posture do I have when I do that? You know, we live in a day and age now, John, where ideas are communicated, not by people who read and think and formulate opinions, we just turn around and share something else that somebody else yes. said or read 
and say, this is how I feel. But along the way, do we end up making compromises on what we believe because what we feel sometimes is even stronger than what we believe? Mm. Because feelings can be immediate. Feelings can change over time. But, but, you know, things that we believe sometimes have to endure things that we feel. Sometimes our feelings don't always line up with our beliefs. Agreed. Because we're not perfect. Um, and so the the record became more uh, a, a collection of songs that sort of respond to the face of adversity and suffering. And there's still a little bit of it that talks about the notion of like, how do we respond in this day and age? Mm-hmm. Cause there are specific challenges that we, that we currently face, but also um, I think a lot of the challenges that we face are challenges that have been around. They've been around. Yeah. It's nothing new under the sun. Longer, longer than us. Yeah. And I think there are challenges that, that people have had to respond to time and time again. And so it really, for me, it became a way to honor my father in the sense of talking about how we respond to those challenges. And, but then also, um, you know, uh, having these songs that for me became a real um, source of uh, inspiration and comfort in, in the grieving process. Matt, you you have three kids, and I won't put you on the spot and ask you to tell me which one is your favorite child, but I am going to put you on the spot, and uh, the song that we are going to move toward break uh, will will be the one you pick. So after having this conversation and talking about your dad and addictions and loneliness and the shadows and the light and faith and how God works through all things perfectly in your career and your wife and your babies and goodness— and challenges. Is there one song that you think, gosh, uh, th- this one song, John, if I was playing concert right now, this would be the song I would turn to. What, what, what song would you lean into? You know, I think the song right now that I still lean into that I think has been a song that I think is really um, was very timely um, would actually be a song called Hold Us Together. But it's so- You know, I wrote that song um, in 2009 after my house lost half its value in Phoenix. I bought a home in Phoenix in May of 2007, which, <clears throat> as an aside, is was the worst possible time, I think, in American history in the worst possible place to buy a home. Yes. <laughs> and um, But that song, you know, I wrote it sort of talking about the housing crisis, but it really has gone on and been a real source of comfort for people who've lost jobs, people who've gotten married, people who've lost loved ones. Um, You know, because the chorus says, you know, love will hold us together make us a shelter to weather the storm. And even, you know, this past weekend being in Houston, Texas and singing it for folks who endured Harvey. And, um, 
the second half of the course says, I'll be my brother's keeper so the whole world will know that we're not alone. I think it speaks to ultimately, I think, everything that I've wanted to be able to use my platform to to call people to is this notion that we're loved and because we're loved, we can we can share that with others and um, we can extend what we've been given to those around us and uh, and use it to and do. And when we do that, it actually it makes the invisible visible. Mm -hmm. It makes the invisible love of God visible in the world. Matt Marr, you have been a delight to uh, spend some time with. Fortunately for me, we have what we call the Live Inspired 7. There are seven pretty straightforward questions that we ask every guest as we move toward break. So, Matt Marr, Live Inspired 7 begins with, what is the best book that you've ever read? Oh, wow. The best book I've ever read. I would have to say um, A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis. Wow. What is that about? It was his journal entries after the death of his wife, Joy uh, Dresham. And it was the book that, when I read it, revealed to me that I didn't really know how to love someone the way that he did in that book. And it was the thing that brought me in some ways to my knees that made me say, God, I want to learn. I want to love a woman like that. And it was after that that I met my wife. That so awesome. it's not the most it's a it's a hard book to read. Sure. But for me, it's such a hopeful, beautiful book because it led me to my wife. Thank you, Matt. Tomorrow you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at 103, leaving you with millions and millions of dollars. Matt, what would you do with that newfound wealth? Oh, wow. Um, well, I'd pay off all my family's debts, and I um, would probably just set up a set up a foundation. I think... Um, I'm a hemophiliac, mm -hmm. and I contracted hepatitis C from a blood transfusion when I was uh, 13 years old. And uh, three years ago, I was finally cured after having it for 27 years because wow. of medical advancement. So I think I would want to reach out to kids who grow up with bleeding disorders who can't have a normal life like I like I have. Um, I was lucky in the sense that what I had was very minor. But um, I also know that there are kids who, because of that, are never really able to have a normal childhood. Right. And uh, I'm sure particularly in, in third world countries around the world. So I would love to be able to help help either help them or help um you know, the, when the when this medical when this advancement came out, the medicine itself was extremely expensive. Um, like it was, uh, there were costs. It was like a thousand dollars a pill, and uh, but it it's it really represents a medical breakthrough in the sense that um, 
it had like a 95% cure rate. Mm. So even if I could help other people, I think with that, um, it's a, it was a weird thing. I mean, we didn't even get into it, but it's a weird thing to have had basically for 27 years. Well, not for 27 years, but for, I found out that I really had it in 2002. And so for fifth, so for 12 years to basically have this disease in the back of your head where you're, you're going, this is probably going to be the thing that kills me. And, uh, and then all of a sudden it's gone. It, it took, it took, honestly, it took two years for me to even believe that I was cured. I sort of wasn't convinced. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a miraculous story. Uh, you know, I think science yeah. and faith, uh, aren't separate. They're actually united. No, no, they're, they are united and they work together. And like, I thank God every day for the, for the, for the doctors and the research scientists who developed, you know, those medicines that, that killed that virus, you know? Um, and for, you know, however God inspired them to use their gifts and talents in such a way that would have such a massive impact on people's lives. Matt, shifting gears just a little bit, you live in Nashville. If your house caught fire and all living things were out, that's your your kids, your bride, your little animals, and you have an opportunity to run back in and grab one item, just one thing, what would you run back in and grab? Um, <clears throat> one of my guitars, probably. <laughs> if my family's okay and the dog's okay, I would I would probably go grab a guitar. Is there a favorite one or uh, no, man? I love them all, and I just have to choose one. No, wisely. there is. There's uh, a, um, a, a youth minister had given me a 1964 Gibson J45 wow. that belonged to uh, his grandfather. And um, it was sort of given as a flat Stanley. Um, and uh, and I traveled with it for years. And uh, but then I've since sort of retired it from the road. And I would probably I would probably either grab that one or um, I recently Martin guitar I had a guitar made that's just sort of a very unique one. And, uh, and I would grab that. Awesome. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation on a gorgeous day with anybody, living or dead, who, Matt Marr, would you like to be hanging out with on that bench? It's a great question. Um, I think either... If I have to just pick one, I would say Tom Petty. <laughs> I got to uh, tell you, man, yeah. that's what it, that would have been one of my, my last guesses that I would have offered up for you. I had a whole lot of names that I would have put in front of Petty, but I think that's awesome. Why'd you choose Tom? Um, his recent death actually has had a pretty profound impact on me. Um, kind of the first one of my musical heroes that was – that wrote stuff that epitomized every chapter of my life. Um, I was, I was a kid when I was only, a, I was barely in middle school 
when his early material or not I was I was, I was in elementary school when his early material came out but you know into the great wide open free fallen that stuff came out when I was in like middle school and um and then all the way through high school all the way through college all the way through young adulthood he seemed to show up every once in a while with sort of an offering mm-hmm. that that captured the moment and um recently the tour that I'm on one night over two nights we um we watched the 4 hour documentary running down a dream <laughs> And I just realized there was a lot more to that guy than he got credit for. And I think it's kind of one of those things that, um, you know, he was not a video. He was not a pop star, but somehow he managed to always be on MTV, which is just crazy. And he was a classic musician who worked really hard and was an incredible songwriter and did things just did things the right way. I mean, I, I mean, obviously he's not, per, not a perfect human being, but um, I didn't realize how much of a Southerner he was mm. of a Southern man. I mean, he really, really was, but being from, being from Florida and sort of having that in his, um, you know, I always associated him with California and desert rock, but um, it, it was a really inspiring documentary. And maybe it made me re- love his creative process and, I could I could spend a whole day with him, and he was also he was a married and he was a and uh, and he was a father and I think um, you know anybody who's a dad anybody or who's a parent and anybody who's married has insights into marriage and family no matter what their experiences are even if they they've only been bad those are still insights mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, and so I think there's always an opportunity to learn. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he was the one who popped to my head. I know I was, I thought of his name and then I thought, what about Augustine <laughs> or what about mother Teresa or what about Pope John Paul II or, you know, all these people. But I was just like, no, Tom Petty. I, you, you went the right way, man. I appreciate you sharing it. So what is the best advice, whether it was Tom Petty or anybody else has ever given you? Oh, go get your heart broken. It was an indirect advice. Um, I remember being in my second year of college, music school in Canada, and there was a guy who was getting his music education degree he was a, who had been to Toronto and been a staff writer for Warner Music for years, and he came back to Newfoundland, and he had a child and was getting a degree so he could be a music teacher, and Maybe he didn't really, I think at the time he didn't really know what he was going to do. And, um, he was interning at a school, uh, a high school, part of his, um, getting his degree. And there was a young, you know, uh, high school student who was very, very talented, like sort of had an extraordinary amount of talent. And she had asked him once, you know, hey, how do I grow as a songwriter? And uh, and he said, go get your heart broken. <laughs> Such awesome advice. And it never left me. And, and even once, you know, I feel like I embraced a redemptive arc in my life 
um, I think the closer you get to learning how to love, you realize that sometimes you you experience love that's so beautiful that it breaks your heart. Sometimes you experience loss in a way that it breaks your heart. Sometimes you experience joy in such a way that it breaks your heart. I think it's uh, the Americana uh, songwriter, Jason Isbell, <laughs> current, amazing artist. Agreed, man. I remember he post, posted this tweet once where he said, um, you know, as if there aren't a million things a day that break your heart. And so I think, I think the school of life is designed in such a way that your heart is, is, I think you can be broken and restored, broken and healed and living life in such a courageous way that you're not afraid when the heartbreaks come, Mm. but you realize that, um, that they're part of learning how to love. And that is such an awesome answer. I'm going to move on before I, uh, before we spend 15 more minutes on it. Two final questions for Matt Marr. Matt, what would you tell your 20 year old self? Uh, <laughs> stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean that the, the unedited answer would be shut up. Um, no, I mean, just, yeah, stop talking. Uh, just listen. Listen to the world around you. Um, I think at 20, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I, I had a lot of energy, and it was great. And I think one of the things I didn't have it was kind of a drag. Like my grandfather, my, my mom's my mom's father was a naval pilot, and um, he, uh, re- the, my they retired in northern Arizona, and uh, he was just such like the quintessential um, granddad. I mean, he hunted, and he fished, and he played golf, and he played the harmonica, and you know you you'd go up to his house and there'd be like, um, like beef jerky and weak light beer in the fridge. Right. You know, at, he'd want to take you out to the desert to go shoot a 22 (laughs) and then he'd take us to a putting green and on the way he'd let me drive his truck sitting in his lap. And, um, he was sort of all the, those kind of embodiments of like, he was like a man's man, but he was also a deeply, a deeply, uh, care, caring. I think he had the, the desire to care for me as a grandson. And I'm just because I, I lived in Canada and he lives in Arizona. We just didn't get to spend a lot of time together. And, um, and, uh, you know, I think that, um, I think that um, there were lessons that I was meant that I, that I could have gotten to learn from him that um, 
that, that if I would have been able to spend more time with him, I think I would have. Mm. And I, and I think that the 20 year old me, um, could have used a little bit more time with him. Awesome. Uh, because I think, I think there's something you learn around older states, men and states, women type figures. And I think one of the things you learn with them is you learn, I think they have a greater appreciation for, for the stillness in life. Um, and there's something, there's a powerful thing when you're, when you learn the value of, of hard work and you learn the sort of a value of discipline. And, um, I didn't really have that consistently growing up. And so I think 20 year old me could have dove a little bit more into that world head first. And, uh, I think my grandfather uh, could have helped me more if I would have let him. Well, you're letting him now, and I think that's remarkable. It has been said, Matt Marr, and this is your final question, that all great singers, songwriters, parents, uh, sons, and daughters can have their lives summed up in one single sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read, Matt? Oh, wow. Um, he finished well. Matt Mar, you have indeed run the race well. You're going to finish well. And we have so enjoyed spending some time with you on our Live Inspired podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, John. And what, what you don't know is my kids, uh, th- we all like different music, but there's there's one song that when it comes on the radio or comes on through an our I- iPad, they all sing. And the song is Hold Us Together by a guy named Matt Marr. What they do, yeah. though, my, my little punk kids, is they add the word dad in front of the first the, the first sentence. So I'm going to say this a lot. I, I may not be able to do it without singing it, but it, it's... Uh, Dad don't have no job. Dad don't pay oh. no bills. Dad won't buy you a home. And it goes on from there. And they just think it's hilarious that dad won't do these things for them. Oh, my goodness. But it shifts quickly from the things that dad won't do into the things that love will do. And uh, th- that's the song that we're going to race toward the finish line together with this incredible song, Hold Us Together, written and performed by Matt Marr. Matt Marr again, uh, thank you for being with us. My friends, that was Matt Marr. This is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. It don't have a job. Don't pay your bills. Won't buy you a home in Beverly my friends, that was Matt Marr, and what a joy it was to have a very, very, very busy, a very successful, a very faithful, a very humble, a very loving performer and guy on our Live Inspired podcast with us today. He is exceptional, and I hope regardless of what your faith beliefs or backgrounds or prejudices may be today, that you were able to open up your mind and your heart and, and, and your life to his journey 
and to his boldness and toward where he is and ultimately where he thinks he's going next. It's an incredible story. He's an incredible guy. We're going to be listening to that song, uh, Hold Us Together, as we move toward the finish line. But again, if you enjoy these podcasts as much as I love, and I do love it, as much as I love bringing them to you, Take a moment now. You can rate the show wherever you download your episodes. You can tell your friends through social media, Facebook, etc., about the Live Inspired podcast. You can tell the ladies and gentlemen that you work out with or you worship with or you work with, you walk with, that you do life with, that in the storms of negativity, there's reason for hope. There's reason for possibility and positivity, and there's reason to believe that the next, that the, that the best is yet to come. This is good news. So if you believe that, like I do, and I know you do, tell your friends about the Live Inspired podcast. So for this time, and until next time, this is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live Inspired.